Let's stand together and turn to Judges chapter 20. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful. It was a beautiful sunrise this morning, just a display of your glory and the beautiful colors. Your mercies are new this morning. We thank you that you don't treat us according to our sins, that you've conquered our sin. And Lord, we're busy, and there's a lot of things going on in our lives, and we just stand in your presence, Lord. We stand united. We want to be still and know that you're God. Please speak to us in a powerful way, in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. As we've been studying the book of Judges, you see that there's quite a mess of sin that has taken place from chapter 19. The horrific event that took place with the Levite's concubine. Now chapter 20 is how do you deal with this mess? How do you deal with the mess of sin? And I think there's a lot of application for us in our lives because we do know this about life until we go home to be with the Lord is there's going to be a lot of opportunities to deal with sin. Whether it's in our own lives or it's in other people's lives, it's a big part of, of our existence. Can I kind of share with you guys a messy story from my week this week? Because uh, the title of the message is The Mess of, of Sin. Our son Wyatt, he's our youngest. Uh, he's two and three months, two and, two and four months. He's not really yet put together sentences. He's had kind of one words, a lot of one words, like truck. And every morning he, he comes and real early taps me in bed and he says, eat. You know, that's the first thing that comes out of his mouth in the morning. So it was Monday morning. Mondays are my day off. And he's, he's up early. And he looks at me and he said his first sentence. Are you ready for it? It's the first sentence. He says, I have poop. <laughs> And I just got such a kick out of that because I have three daughters as well as older, and that was not their first sentence, you know. <laughs> Classic little man, first sentence. And so I had a mess uh, to deal with first thing in the morning, and, and he was right. He did indeed have poop. And well, sometimes life gets a little bit messy, doesn't it? And there's a mess to, to deal with. We're going to look at this in a little different style. I'm going to present this in a little bit different way this morning. If you come regularly to RMC, you know that we go through the chapter and I will comment on the chapter as we go. Uh, today I'm going to read through the chapter primarily and make a few brief comments and then we're going to make application at the end. So really the teaching is going to come after I read through uh, this story. So would you join me in verse 1 of chapter 20? So all of the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gibeah, and the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. Dan to Beersheba. Dan is north, Beersheba is south, so all of Israel unite together before the Lord. And the leaders and all the people, all the tribes of Israel, present themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. Then the children of Israel said, tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? They're responding to the Levites' concubine who had been raped to death by the Benjamites in the city of Gibeah, chapter 19, if you missed it last week. 
The Levite, he then cut his wife who had died, who'd been murdered, into 12 pieces, sent her throughout all of Israel. So you can imagine that that's what they get. That's what they receive from, from the messenger is a piece of the Levite's wife. Then they respond to that and they all gather together in the presence of the Lord asking this question, how did this wickedness take place? Verse four, so the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, my concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. What information did he leave out that he handed over his concubine to save his own life? So he leaves that information out. Verse 6, So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel, because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. So he's saying, okay, guys, how are we going to deal with this? Verse 8, So all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. And they institute a draft. They institute a 10% draft amongst the warriors. We will take 10 men out of every 100 throughout all of the tribes of Israel, 100 out of every 1,000, and 1,000 out of every 10,000 to make provisions for the people that when they come to Gibeah and Benjamin, they may repay all of the vileness they have done in Israel." So all of the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. So they're coming against the tribe of Benjamin, putting together an army, holding them accountable for the actions. And verse 12, then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all of the tribe of Benjamin saying, what is this wickedness that has occurred among you? So guys, what's happened here? Verse 13, now therefore deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Israel would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. So this is justice, going back from the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. God had said if this kind of wickedness takes place that there was to be the death penalty. So they come and say, give us the men who have done this. And what was the tribe of Benjamin's response? We'll see in verse 14. It says, Instead, the children of Israel gathered together from the cities of Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. So instead of turning over those who had done the wickedness, they defend them. They they say, no, we're going to protect them. We won't give them over to you. That sets the stage for a civil war. And what we're going to read for the rest of the chapter is Israel then going against this tribe of Benjamin gets messy, doesn't it? Sin never just affects the person who committed the sin and the victim of the sin. It affects so many more people. It's affecting all of Israel in an intense way. Verse 15, and from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword beside the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men. So they had 26,000 men of war, and then they have this select group from Gibeah, 700 men who were ancient Navy SEALs. They were the well-trained warriors. Verse 16, 
Among all of this people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. 700 men, all left-handed. You could put a hair out there and they could get it with their slingshot. That's pretty amazing. And so these were who they were going up against. The tribe of Benjamin throughout the Old Testament were fierce warriors. In verse 17, Now beside Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 who were drew the sword. All of these were men of war. So Israel has 400,000. Benjamin has just over 26,000. The odds are in favor of Israel. Now remember, this is all Israel. Benjamin is a tribe of Israel. The rest of Israel is going up against their own people. Verse 18, then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. They said, which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah first. Who's the first ones that are to go into this battle? And God chooses the tribe of Judah. Why would God choose the tribe of Judah? We know Judah means praise. A lot of times when we go into battle, we're to go in through praise. That's where the battle is won and lost. Many times God would send in the worship team first in the Old Testament before the warriors. Also, who's from the tribe of Judah? Jesus. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus leads us into battle. So the tribe of Judah is going to go first. God says, send them in. So the children of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at at Gibeah. Can you picture in your mind this battle that's about ready to begin? I just recently read a book on the Civil War and the description of those battles and the historical account. And maybe you've read something like that or seen a movie where the battle scene's about ready to take place. And that's what we find here in the book of Judges. Then the children of Israel, then the children of Benjamin, excuse me, came out of Gibeah and on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. The bad guys win. The guys who committed this perverted act, the guys that protected this evil group of men, they win. And they kill 22,000 Israelites, not what we would expect. And the people, that is, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves again and formed the battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. What courage. They're going to take the battle line again. And the children of Israel wept, went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of Israel, my brother Benjamin? They're broken. They've just lost 18,000 of their men. God, do you want us to go up again? God's answer, and the Lord said, go up against him. This is the battle that God wants them to fight. Verse 24, so the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day, and Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day, and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Benjamin. All these drew the sword. Day two, they lose 18,000. In a 48-hour period, they've lost 40,000 thousand men. This could be the most bloody week in all of Israel's history. This is just the beginning of the bloodshed. And again, it's overwhelming. The bad guys get the victory. The ones that are being held to justice, they get the victory. Those that are trying to stand up against them die. 40,000 are lost. Verse 26, then all the children of Israel 
That is, all the people went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat there before the Lord, and they fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. I can't even imagine the level of brokenness. Can you? 40,000 of your brothers killed. They're crying out before God. God, I thought you called us into this battle. I thought this is what you wanted us to do. Now they're giving up food. They're fasting and they're offering up burnt offerings and peace offerings. Verse 27, so the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before in those days saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. They get the marching orders once again. The victory is going to come on the third day. Verse 29, Then Israel set men in ambush all around Gibeah. And the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day and put themselves in battle array against Gibeah as at other times. So the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They began to strike down and kill some of the people as at the other times in the highways, one of which goes to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the field about 30 men of Israel. So it seems like things are going to happen the same way, that Benjamin is going to have the victory. They've already killed 30 men. And the children of Benjamin said, they are defeated before us, as at first. But the children of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highway. So they changed their tactic. This time they say, let's, let's flee, let's run away. And they set an ambush. And we'll see that in the next few verses. So all of the men of Israel rose from their place and put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. Then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plain of Gibeah And 10,000 select men from all of Israel came against Gibeah, and the battle was fierce. But the Benjamites didn't know that the disaster was upon them. Key phrase, verse 35, the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. God's the one who brought the victory. And the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. So you have 40,000 Israelites who had died, now 25,000 Benjamites, who are Israelites as well, and the death toll is mind-blowing. The rest of the chapter gives us more detail on the victory that we've just read, these Benjamites that had been defeated. You guys still with me? You guys doing okay? All right, verse 36. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they'd set against Gibeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah. The men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. So as the men are drawn away from the city, they go in and are able to take Gibeah where this horrific act had taken place. Verse 38. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise from the city, whereupon the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel, for they said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them 
And there was the whole city going up in smoke to heaven. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw the disaster had come upon them. So Israel starts to flee, draws the Benjamites out, go in and take the city. Benjamite sees their city is on fire. They turn back, and that's how Benjamin was defeated. Verse 42. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them, and whoever came out of the cities, they're destroyed in their midst. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Gibeah towards the east. And 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. And they cut down 5,000 on the highways. They pursued them relentlessly up to Gibdon and killed 2,000 of them. So all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. We have the summary of the battle. Verse 47 and 48, we find then that Israel, four months later, they cross over that line of justice into revenge. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Rimmon, and they stayed at the Rock of Rimmon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beast, all who were found. They also set fire to all the cities they came. They also set fire to all the cities they came to. Well, God bless you guys. Have a great week. <laughs> I'm glad we could read that chapter together. So, so this is where I'm going to break it down. Let's kind of begin teaching. Is we're going to look at what to do when dealing with sin, and then we're going to look at what not to do in dealing with sin. Because in our lives, we're going to have to deal with sin in our own selves, our own person, but we're also going to have to deal sin in others, in our families, brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's put this in context. Maybe there's some sin that's taking place in your home, with your spouse, with your kids, with you. How do you deal with that? How do you handle it? Do you just put it under the carpet? Do you say, I'm not going to deal with it? You know, maybe it's happening with a close friend. You know, maybe it's happening in, in your own life. It's easy to just say, well, I'm not going to deal with it. But we're, we have to deal with it. Sin is going to destroy us. So looking back on this chapter, the first thing that we're to do when dealing with sin is unite before the Lord. Unite before the Lord. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 20. So the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gibeon, and the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. This is the most important thing when dealing with sin. Churches, as a body of Christ, at times we've got to deal with sin with one another as we unite before the Lord. We come into God's presence. We take this sin into the one who can deal with that, and that's Jesus Christ. So say something's going on with your kids, and your kids live at home, and you know that this is happening under your roof. Yeah, I got to deal with this. You're a single parent. You're, you know, both mom and dad are in the home. What do you do? You get before the Lord. You unite. The enemy wants to divide. Whenever there's sin, the enemy wants to come in and he wants to swim in those murky, confusing waters. So we've got to be diligent to say, I'm going to stay united. We're going to stay together on this. 
A lot of times churches are divided over having to deal with sin in their midst. This is so, so very important. Getting God's word, getting God's presence. Throughout this chapter, they did this. Not only did they do it in verse 1, but then who goes first? Judah. They got into God's presence. They inquired of the Lord. After the first defeat, God, are we really supposed to be doing this? And God says, yep, go again. Second defeat, get before God. Now they're fasting and praying. Do you see how that's how you deal with sin? Is you go to God. You get into his presence. You unite before the Lord. That's important for us to do. If we're the ones that have committed the sin, what do we do? We get with brothers and sisters in Christ. We get with our family. We get with those that we know care about us. And we go into God's presence. And we wait upon the Lord and inquire of the Lord. The second thing to do in dealing with sin is take appropriate action. Take appropriate action. Look with me in verse 8. It says, So all of the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. They said, This is serious. The fact that this woman got raped to death, we can't just turn a blind eye to it. We can't continue going on with our lives as business as usual. So they say, we're not going to go home until this is dealt with. No one's going back to to their dwelling place. We're going to make sure that the appropriate action takes place. And when sin takes place, there's a mess. There's difficulty. There's consequences. It's got to be dealt with. It's got to be unraveled. And our tendency is going to be one of two things. Is some people will say, this is just too much for me. I'm going to go on with my life and pretend like nothing, nothing happened wrong response. And then other people kind of go homicidal. And they have no problem taking action. They just take the wrong action. And no, that's not it. It's not being passive, but it's not being violent. It's taking the right action. What's God's heart? How does God want to deal with this? Where is justice in this particular situation? And so they took the appropriate action. But one of the worst things that we can do is turn a blind eye or over-respond, because sin destroys. That's why God wants us to deal with sin in our lives and the lives of others. It's not something that we can be passive about. What would happen to the children of Israel if, if they didn't deal with this sin that took place in their midst? The next thing that we see of what to do with sin is to confront sin directly. Look at verse 13 with me. Now therefore deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death, and remove the evil from Israel. They deal with the sin directly. We talked briefly about how this was justice for these men to experience capital punishment because they raped this woman to death. There's a societal justice that God has put in place. Romans 13 talks about that God has raised up the governing authorities to hold evil in check. To hold evil in accountability. And so these guys are coming from that sense, from a societal sense, and saying, we've got to hold these guys accountable for this kind of action. And you see, part of the unraveling of a culture is when there's no justice. When people can commit this gross kinds of evil and nobody stands up to them. There's nothing in place to, to hold them into check. And so you've got to deal with the sin directly. But let's make more personal application because in dealing with our families and brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't implement capital punishment. Amen? We all clear on that? And that that's not our job. That's, that's not what we're to do. 
We're to go to one another in love. And the scripture tells us many ways about how to deal with sin in each other's life. Matthew 18 tells us if someone has sinned against us, if they've offended us, that we're to go to them to win a brother. And let's be clear, we're talking about sin, not personal preference. So you can't go to your spouse and be all bent out of shape because how they get the toothpaste out of the tube. That, that's not what we're talking about here. Or if they put the toilet paper on the roll the wrong direction and you're all bent out of shape about that, that's what we're not talking about. You can't find any toothpaste commandment in Scripture. You get what I'm saying? Those are personal preferences that we need to let go in love. We're talking about sin, where we know that there's sin that's in our spouse's life, in the life of our children, a, a good friend, someone close to us. And we go, you know, I've got to deal with this. I love them, so what do I do? And it's happened against me that they've sinned against me. Is you go to them with the attitude to win a brother, to win a sister, to gain a relationship. If we're going to make a point, if we're going to punish them, if we're going with that kind of heart and that kind of attitude, we need to get with the Lord until he gives us that right heart to say, the reason that I'm having this conversation is because I care about the relationship. The relationship. You go to win a brother. Also, Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, God tells us to get the log out of our own eye first. And then to get the speck out of our brother or sister's eye. Could you imagine trying to get a, a speck out of someone's eye while you've got a log in your eye? You're going to do so much damage. We first have to examine what's in my life that I'm not dealing with. What's the sin in my own person that needs to, to be dealt with? Addie, our, our second daughter, she had a, a piece of bark, just a small piece of wood in her eye this week from playing in the yard. And it reminded me in watching Amber try to get that speck out, what a gentle process that is. You know, Amber's gently opening up her eye and trying to wipe it out, and that didn't work. And so then it was to the kitchen sink and get the water, and, and that worked. But you don't go into the eye with a lot of brute force, do you? That's one thing that kind of grosses me out is the idea of getting a shot in my eye. No, thank you. you know? I know a lot of people do the, the laser surgery and it goes well, and I guess I'm a candidate for that with, with, with my eyes, and it'd be nice to not wear glasses, but there has to be a laser in my eye. <laughs> I'm not sure if I want that. You know, the eyes are, are sensitive. It may be the smallest of area, but God says, go in with a gentle attitude. Go in with a, a humble attitude. Don't go in with like a bull in a china shop. Deal with sin directly, but deal with it lovingly. Deal with it gently. Galatians tells us if, if we're going to restore someone, someone who's been overtaken in trespass, that we're to do it in a spirit of gentleness and meekness, considering ourselves, lest we're tempted. So if we go in with force and pride and I'm better than you, then we're going to find ourselves falling in the same way. Take heed if you think you stand lest you fall. We go with an attitude of I'm a sinner. I know I'm going to need to be confronted on my sin. I know I'm very capable of the same struggle that you have just given yourself over to. One of the good things that happens in this chapter is they dealt with sin directly. It's got to be dealt with directly. It can't be swept under the carpet. You've got to say it straight, and you've got to say it lovingly. You've got to deal with it. 
the other thing that we see of what to do that's good is persist in difficult obedience. Persist in difficult obedience. I think this is one of the more challenging sections of Scripture in terms of they're doing something that God wants them to do, but it results in defeat. It results in loss. It results in 40,000 men who are killed. Do you ever feel like that? God, you called me to do this. You asked me to go on this mission, this direction, but ever since I said yes to that, it just seems like there's so much loss. There's so much defeat. When is the victory going to come? And what happened? They persisted in obedience for three days, even with great losses. And look with me in verse 28, at the end of verse 28. And the Lord said, go up for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. Tomorrow I'll deliver them into your hand. What if you're one day away from the victory? One more day of obedience. And if you persist in difficult obedience, it's not easy. It's long obedience in the right direction. The victory will come. But a lot of times in dealing with sin in our lives and the lives of others, we're looking for microwave results. So I had the difficult conversation. And so everything should just be perfect after that difficult conversation. I set the microwave at 30 seconds, and now we're going to have resolution to, to this difficulty. Sometimes, but usually not. Usually the victory comes after sin, after we've given over to sin, after long obedience, persistent obedience in our lives and in the lives of others. It's not like going through the drive-thru. I just, I went, I went through the drive-thru and got my, my results. I think of it as a web. So you've got a web that's been weaved in this life of sin. Now it's seeking to be dealt with. Now Israel's seeking to deal with this, this wickedness, and it's not going to be easy. It's going to take persistent obedience in order for the victory to come. Maybe you're the one who is struggling with the sin. I'm, I'm struggling with the sin, and I desire victory. Part of our mindset should be persistent obedience in the right direction. Sometimes God delivers in a moment, and he has the power to do that, and praise God when he does that. But other times, the victory comes over long perseverance, doesn't it? And sometimes we're tempted in a particular area of our lives for the rest of our lives. And it's good for us to understand that sometimes the victories come through that long endeavor of obedience, that persistent obedience. So those are some things to do when dealing with sin. And here's some things not to do that we see in this, this chapter. And I'm sure there's more of them as you meditate upon this chapter later on. But what stands out to me is verse 5. Let's look at verse 5 together. Judges 20 verse 5. This is the Levite who had his concubine murdered. And the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. This is what not to do, is don't hide the truth. Don't hide the truth. Don't hide the truth. This Levite wanted to hide the truth because he would lose so much face if he told all of Israel, 400,000 soldiers, guess what guys, this group of perverted men came to rape me, but instead of me standing up against them, I turned over my wife to them. I turned over my, my concubine to them. Do you see what he left out? Do you see how he hid the truth? Do you see how he presented himself in a better light? When we sin, when we rebel, when we fall short, 
even when we make a foolish decision, a lot of times we want to present ourselves in a better light. Wasn't me. I don't know how that happened. Wyatt must have took my keys. He's a good scapegoat, my two-year-old, right? I have a tendency to lose my, t- my keys, and hey, I-, I bet Wyatt put them in some strange place. That happens sometimes, but you know what happens more of the time? I make a foolish decision, and I just misplace my keys. But we go through life, and it's, it's really easy to do the same thing that the Levite did as well. But God brings deliverance when we embrace the truth when we choose honesty, transparency, humility, it's difficult to do, but I'm done playing games. What if this Levite would have said, guys, I am so broken. I'm carrying so much guilt and so much remorse because this is what I did. I turned my wife over to, to, to these men. Different story. What does confession mean? Confession means to agree with God. And 1 John 1.9 says, if you confess your sins... He's faithful and he's just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There's no sin that's greater than the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. That is the gospel. That's good news. Our responsibility is to not hide our sin, but to confess it, to agree with God. God, I agree with you that this area of my life is wrong. I've sinned against you. Also, James 5 tells us, that we're to confess to one another. And as we confess to one another, we're to pray for one another, and God brings healing. Something happens in our lives when we take a struggle, a sin, and it's no longer in the dark. We bring it out into the light before God. We bring it out before others. They begin to pray for us. We have support. God begins to heal. Don't hide the truth. I'm sure this morning that the Holy Spirit is touching some hearts this morning because you're hiding the truth. And you're the most miserable because the conviction of God is upon you. And God wants to set you free today. And you have a choice, even right now, while you're listening to this message, to go, God, I agree with you. I'm not going to wrestle with you any longer. I know that this area of my life is wrong, and I know I need to tell this person. And I'm not going to bed tonight before I open up to others and allow them to pray for me. I'm not going to eat lunch today until I open up and share with others, God, I want to live in the light. It's miserable to sin. It's miserable to blow it. But even what's more miserable than sinning is staying there. And there's so much freedom to turn from that sin, to not hide the truth, and walk in the light. It's a miserable feeling going, is today the day I'm going to be found out? Is today the day that they're going to find it? It's today the day that people are going to know who I really am. And it's so much freeing to be honest before the Lord, to be honest before our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's look at another thing not to do. Go with me to verse 13 and 14, the, the end of 13 and the end of 14. But the children of Israel would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. The children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. Remember, all of Israel comes to Benjamin and says, hey, turn over the guys that did this vile thing. And they say, nope, we're not doing it. We're not going to hand them over. We would rather go to battle and lose lives, take lives, then turn these men over and then be held accountable for justice. So this is something not to do. Don't provide a safe haven for sin. 
don't provide a safe haven for sin. They provided a safe haven for sin. In fact, they defended sin. This gets a little difficult to talk about in our families, doesn't it? But we don't want our homes that are to be dedicated to the Lord to become places that are safe havens for sin. In a good godly marriage, we should lovingly challenge each other, hold each other accountable, and say, look, instead of enabling each other for a life of sin, let's hold each other accountable. With our kids, it gets difficult, doesn't it? But our homes for our children shouldn't become a, a safe haven for sin. We, sh- we shouldn't enable them to be in rebellion to God. We should be having those difficult conversations with them, making some difficult choices. If you've got roommates and you're single and you've decided that this home is going to be a place that's dedicated to the Lord, don't allow it to be a safe haven for sin. We don't want the church of God, not the building, but the people of God to become a safe haven for sin. We don't want to be in this place where we know about sin in each other's lives, we open up about sin in each other's lives, and we don't challenge each other. We don't love each other enough to say, look, God died for you, and he set you free from this. Don't walk in it any longer. I'm going to care about you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to to challenge you. But our first response usually is to defend our sin, isn't it? To get it a little bit closer to home. When someone comes and knocks on our door and says, hey, what about this wickedness? oh, we're going to go to battle over this. I'm going to protect this. I'm going to provide a safe haven for sin. It's a huge mistake that the Benjamins make, and that leads to the civil war, and that leads to even greater consequence. The last thing that we see what not to do, and it's heartbreaking, is in verse 47 and 48. Let's read verse 47 and verse 48 together. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness of the rock of Rimmon. So this is all that's left is these 600 men of the warriors. The rest have, have been, been killed. And they stayed at the rock of Rimmon for four months. So this is four months after the battle that we just read. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beast. All were found They also set fire to all the cities they came to. May I ask you a question? Is this justice? This is revenge. This is saying, look, we had 40,000 guys die, and they had 25,000 guys die, and they're the ones who had the rapists that committed murder, and they're the ones who defended the rapists, but we had 40,000 guys die, that's not enough for them to only have 25,000 guys die. We're going to wait four months, and we're going to allow the bitterness to build. We're going to allow the anger to build, and then we're going to go back through. And they destroy all of the cities of Benjamin, destroying everything in, in, in the midst. Was that God's heart? No. And as we deal with sin, there's going to be this temptation inside of us. Hear me on this. You will get sinned against. You will get sinned against by other believers. This is inside of the people of God. This is other Benjamites. And you're going to have a choice to make. You've got to deal with the sin. You've got to deal with it lovingly. Deal with it directly. But are you going to seek revenge? And God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You have to leave it in his hands. You will be destroyed as a person if you go on the path of revenge. Even if you get it. 
you won't be satisfied with it. It'll never be enough. You've got to forgive. You've got to let go. For your benefit, for God's glory, where can we find the source for forgiveness when this type of wickedness has happened against us? Only at the cross. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ Jesus forgave you. There's one reason God forgives us, and that's Jesus. Nothing in us. We don't deserve it. When we think about all that we've done, God has forgiven me personally far more than I'm ever going to have to forgive anybody else, any other individual. And when I can remember his grace and his forgiveness and the kindness of Jesus Christ on the cross, then it protects me from this place of revenge. Justice is needed. There's times to step up and say, look, there needs to be accountability. There's the benefit of that. God tells us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So there's a place for justice, but then there's a place for mercy. And walking humbly with our God, keeping our own sin into perspective. This is a difficult chapter. In some ways, I'm surprised that you guys are still coming to church after the last few weeks in in Judges. But there's a lot here for us to learn, isn't there? And we start to see and go, you know what? I'm seeing how Israel is dealing with sin. And I start to see some of my own patterns of dealing with my sin and also the sin in other people's lives. Remember, the reason that we're here in the book of Judges, the reason that society looks like this for Judges is because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes instead of doing what is right in God's eyes. So read ahead next week. We're going to finish the book of Judges. And as we close out this morning, let me tell you this. Who conquers sin? It's Jesus. Who conquers sin? It's Jesus. Why did Jesus go to the cross? To deal with sin. So we would have forgiveness. There's no other way to be forgiven but through the blood of Jesus. Have you trusted Christ Have you put your faith in believing that he's God? What do you believe about Jesus? Who would you say that Jesus is? Do you believe that he's God? Do you believe he's your savior? Have you become aware of your sin and knowing that you're a sinner and then repenting of your sin and crying out to Jesus and saying, Jesus, save me, be my Lord. The beauty of the promise of God is as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, as we call out to him, He provides forgiveness. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As we worship in this last song, that's the invitation. And you come. There's going to be a ministry team here on the sides. We would love to pray with you. and Let us know, I want to receive Christ as my Savior. I'm ready to believe. I need to be saved. And we're going to lead you in a simple prayer from your heart of putting your faith in Christ.